Amen. Thank you, Ross, for reading that long text for us. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I beg you that you remind us of the weight of your holy word, that every sentence in it, every word in it, is something that the creator of this universe has spoken to us in. And let us take it as that. And Lord, as we dive deeper into this story, that may some know, some may know and some others may not. But I beg you that you keep our hearts worshipful, that our minds would um, persevere, and that our hearts would be transformed by the gospel message that is clear and throughout the whole text. And that we may be reminded we are loved beyond measure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, friends, so today we're going to continue through this series that we have been calling The Life of Jacob. And before we kind of zoom into this one part of the story that Ross just read for us, it may be helpful to see what place uh, Jacob's story as a whole, not just this part, but, but the whole part, has in Scripture as, as a whole, okay? So Jacob's story, just kind of to bring it down to the bottom line. To, to, the, to the baseline. It's about God's redemptive promise, okay? A story of God giving his blessings unto a particular family line, starting with Abraham, goes on to Isaac, and as we read, the blessing went to who? Jacob. The promise of blessing here is not just money or a career, but the promise that through this family line, through these people, God, in Genesis 12 and 15 says, will bring about his redemptive plan for all of the world. Now, they didn't know what exactly God was talking about back then, but now we know that through this family line, who was born, as we read in Matthew chapter 1? Jesus Christ, right? He was born at the end. He was a blessing that God was giving this family to be a part of this redemptive story. So what is Jacob's life really about? It's about the gospel. It's about the good news that one day, Through this family line, God will bring about fulfillment of his redemptive plan. That God himself will enter into our story. He'll be born as a human. That's what Christmas is about, right? Why? To die on a cross. So that we may be forgiven. Received into his embrace eternally. Now. One may think, surely, surely this earthly family of God, whom he has chosen to bring about his redemptive plan, surely this earthly family of God will be filled with joy and awe and thankfulness of what God has done, right? Surely God's family on earth is not going to be filled with hatred and division and brokenness, right? Surely God's family on earth are not going to kill each other over what exact instruments are supposed to be played at church, right? Or or what exactly to wear at church, right? I I mean, there may be disagreements, necessary and healthy ones amongst themselves, but I'm sure it won't get to the point of malice or, or hatred or envy or ill will to where they look down and manipulate each other. But then we look at God's family in this passage and we see just that. And we see the church today and, and God's family today and, and we see just that. I mean, it really didn't, didn't take long for God's people to kind of turn against each other, did it? We, we barely left Genesis. The story just started. 
and already there's dissension, there's, there's brokenness. See, the threat of brokenness amongst God's people, amongst God's family is not new. It's not unique to your church. It's not unique to our church. It's, it's been a threat for God's family forever, ever since Genesis, from the beginning. So I hope as we study this passage, it'll speak to both Christians and also to you who are here who may still be exploring the gospel, uh, kind of figuring out who Jesus is, what the Bible is all about. And, and I hope we see that if you're still exploring the gospel, I hope you'll understand, um, or I understand, how you may think like this. And I, I get it. You might think like this. Church people fight all the time, right? Therefore, if church people fight all the time, the gospel message that they're preaching must not be true. But I want to propose the opposite. That sometimes these frictions that you see in church actually show just how true the gospel is. We'll get there in point number two. I hope we see that later. But if you are a Christian here, if you're part of CCC, or if you're part of any other church in the city, or in the world, I hope that you see the urgency for us here to be saturated and drenched by the gospel message that we see in this text, which is the only true solution from feeling estranged from each other like the family members here in the story we just read. All right, so let's take a look at why brokenness happens. Why is there friction all the time in the church? What is the reason? How can we navigate through it? And what is our hope through it all? Three points. The cause of favoritism in God's family, the wound of favoritism in God's family, and the God who favors the weak as family. The cause of favoritism, the wound of favoritism in God's family, and the God who favors the weak as family. All right, let's, let's jump to it. Point number one, the cause of favoritism in God's family. All right, we see here in Genesis 27 that there is a family, a family God himself put together. Does not your church sometimes feel like that? God ordained this family to come together and, and be with each other, and we had a strong start. But what happened here? It's filled now eventually with manipulations and lies and deceits. Why is that? It comes down to this. They played favorites. Isaac, the father, favored who? Esau, the older brother, right? And Rebekah, the mother, favored who? Jacob, the younger brother. They played favorites. Both Isaac and Rebekah chose to give their love to the child that they thought could offer them more. They chose to pick favorites. They chose to give their love to the person they think could give them more. In other words, they chose to love one particular child more than the other because that particular child was more useful to them than the other child. Let's look at Abraham first, then we'll get to Rebecca. Abraham, why did he favor Esau? Chapter 27, uh, verse 1 to 4. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my, my death. Now then, take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now notice, <clears throat> quick, quick history here. If you know your book of Genesis, this may not be immediately obvious, but, but Isaac here was actually being disobedient to God. How? 
Well, who did Isaac want God's blessing to go to based on the verses we just read? He wanted to go to Esau, the older brother, right? But if you remember in chapter 25, who did God say the blessing was meant to go to? Jacob or Esau? It was meant to go to Jacob, the younger brother. And Isaac knew that. Rebekah knew that. It says, the older shall serve the younger, God said to them. Isaac knew the blessing was supposed to go to Jacob, but yet he still gave it to Esau. Side note, blessing here is a key term. Blessing is not just family property. It's not, it's not just that you know, they'll get daddy's money. Blessing here is that um, the honor and the privilege of being the guy that God says, through you, your descendants will bless the nations. We know now he meant Jesus Christ. So the, the guy that gets that honor, to, to get that, it's meant to go to Jacob. But yet Isaac gave it to Esau, the older brother. Why? Well, read it again. See, see why. It's because Esau was able to give Isaac something that Jacob couldn't. Look at verse 3 and 4. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. And if you read the story of Esau, the older brother, he's kind of the hunter and Jacob, the younger brother, he's kind of the timid one. He's kind of the one that doesn't do things. He's, he's kind of more the cultured kid cooking, right? And, and what was Esau able to give Isaac that Jacob can't? Verse three, wild game. Verse four, to be made into delicious food. Now, the word delicious food in this whole passage happens eight times. And the word game, which is wild animal, happens six times, all relating to Isaac's desire for it. What is author trying to say? Isaac really, really, really wants it. He really wants this, this, this wild animal. He really wants this food. So much so that he was willing to disobey God and, and, and bless Esau instead of Isaac to get it. In other words, Isaac worshipped his palate and his stomach more than he worshipped God. Isaac told Esau, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And this is also funny because the word love here is intentional. It's not that I like, but I love. In other places in the Old Testament, when this word love happens, it's always in relation to a love you have for another human being. It's saying Isaac made food more than food. He loved food with a love that is disproportionate to how food should be loved in. He loved food with a level of love that was not meant for food. It's meant for humans. Isaac continued to say, and bring it to me so that I may eat. A literal, tra a literal translation here probably captures the meaning better. It's not just so that I may eat, but it's so that my life can eat. Isaac loved, Isaac's love for delicious food went beyond to fulfill his stomach and his palate. It fulfilled his life. What's happening here? What, this is what happened. Isaac just made a good thing, food, into an ultimate thing. He made a good thing into an ultimate thing. He worshipped food. And, and we, we do this all the time, don't we? At least I do. We often make good things ultimate. People who already have a lot of money would still kill themselves at work and sacrifice their families even more with the time that they give to work. It happens all the time. Why? To get promotions. Why? Because work for us is more than just work. We've made it more than just work. It's become a source of identity and value. Uh, our, our job, the status of it, the company we work for, our salary, 
It dictates our sense of self. It dictates our identity. We've made work to become more than just work. We've made our social life to be more than just social life, more, more than just friends. Our friend groups become um, a measure of our worth. Who are we hanging out with? Who are my friends on Instagram? It's become a sense of self, a sense of identity. We've made friends more than just friends. Our house becomes more than just a house. Our car becomes more than just a car. <laughs> you see. And you know what happens when those things get taken away? It crushes us. It crushes us. Because we didn't just lose our job. What did we lose? We lost our sense of self. We didn't just lose our girlfriend or a boyfriend. We lost our identity. We lost our value. We lost our worth. Right? See, when good things become ultimate, when we make that thing the main place where we can fulfill a particular longing, we do anything to keep it. And a father like Isaac would even rob his younger son for the blessings meant for him to somebody else. Why? Because delicious food for Isaac has become a, a place for him to fulfill his longing of comfort. He's old. He wants good food, delicious food. It, 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 it fills my life. But... But Abraham is not the only one that fell into favoritism here. Let's look at Rebekah. She did too. If Abraham favored Esau, Rebekah favored, sorry. If Isaac favored Esau, Abraham was before this. Okay, delete that from your minds. If Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored Jacob. Well, that's not so bad, you think, because God, didn't you just say God in Genesis 25 said the blessing was meant to go to Jacob? So why was it so wrong for Rebekah to also want the blessing to go to Jacob? Sure, but it's wrong because her motivation and her methods were not according to God's. Let's talk about her motivation. You would think that the motivation Rebecca has for blessing, um, uh, blessing Jacob is because God said it, but that's not really why. Let's take a look first at Genesis chapter 26, verse 34, 35, the very first uh, verse in your pronounce, in your passage. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barry, uh, the Hittite, to be his wife. The, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Esau took two wives. It made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And not only did he take two wives, he took two Hittite wives. And God particularly told him not to take wives from certain clans, and Hittites was one of them back then. But <clears throat> the, the pain that this caused Isaac and Rebekah wasn't equal. It seemed like it, it distraught Rebecca more than it did Isaac. Rebecca was more bothered by this than Isaac because it's not in your pronouns, but I put it on the PowerPoint. If you skip down to Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, this is what you see. Rebecca says this. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob, the younger brother, marries one of the Hittite women like these, like Esau married, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And many scholars, including Bruce, Walk, Bruce Walkie, who's a, who's a leading scholar in the Old Testament, he, he gives, uh, tells us that, that the, the, the author gives us information, and Rebecca said all this. It tells us this is the motivation of why Rebecca favored Jacob, because he didn't like Esau's choice of marriage. She favored Jacob not primarily to obey God, but because she loathed Esau's decision to marry not only one, but two Hittite women. And actually later we see him marrying more than two Hittite women. And if Jacob did the same, what did she say? What did Rebecca say? Well, my life would be meaningless. Her, her whole life would be meaningless. Her whole life is, 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 
is founded on this. So what does she do? In verses 5 to 17, she decided to manipulate. She came up with a scheme and told her son Jacob, lie to your father, manipulate, take advantage of his blindness. (laughs) That's horrible. To make sure that Esau doesn't get the blessings. Okay, here's what the passage is saying. If Isaac favored Esau because Esau could give him comfort, Rebekah favored Jacob because Jacob could give her control. If Isaac favored Esau because Esau could give him comfort, Rebekah favored Jacob because Jacob could give her control, comfort and control. It made them both disobey God and played favorites. If Isaac trusted God's word, he wouldn't have given the blessing to Esau. He would have given the blessing to Jacob. You see, if Rebekah trusted God's words, she would not have to have resorted to her own manipulation, but trust that God's will will be done. The younger will serve the older. She doesn't need to take control of her in her own hands and do something displeasing to God. The desire for comfort and control made them pick and choose who to love more. Favoritism. Based on how much the other person could satisfy their desires. In other words, they were using their children, not loving them. And they started to relate with one another in a transactional manner. And we're no better, friends. We're really not. I'm not. We do this all the time. When was the last time you walked into a party, you saw everybody in the room, and you asked yourself this question? Hmm, I wonder how my interactions tonight can make everybody else look good. We don't ask that question. I wonder how I can be useful to make everybody else look good. No. What do we ask? How can my interactions tonight make me look good? That's the first question. That's the first inclination we have, right? I do that all the time. And it happens at church too, doesn't it? And when familial interrelationships become transactional, you may not feel the effects of it right away, but it will slowly erode a sense of belonging. And the consequences are huge. Let's go to the second point. The wound of favoritism in God's family. Now, to be clear, I'm not just talking about friction of of, of people arguing. People in families argue all the time. People in church argue all the time. And friction, as I'll explain here in a bit, is not necessarily a bad sign. The wound and the consequences of playing favoritism, the wound and the consequences of picking and choosing who to relate with based on what they can offer you is is something deeper. It's this. It's a sense of estrangement. You feel estranged from one another. And I think, Rebecca, what, what, is, what does the word estrangement mean? Rebecca's words in verse 6 can explain to us more, I think. When she was convincing Jacob to lie to his father, in verse 6, Rebecca said this. Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father uh, speak to your brother Esau. That's very telling. I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Notice in verse 6, take, to look, take a look at it. How does verse 6 describe Rebecca viewing Jacob? Her son. Her son. But when referring to Isaac, how does, how does uh, uh, Rebecca address him? As my husband? No. As what? As your father. Not my husband. And when she was talking about Esau, how did she address Esau? As my son Esau? No. As your brother Esau. 
This is, this is what it means. This signifies what a sense of estrangement uh, Rebecca had means. People who were supposed to be her family, she could not even call mine. She couldn't call people in her own family mine. Arguments, friends, happen all the time. Arguments in God's family, the church, happen all the time. But in the midst of it all, we have to still be able to call each other mine. If we're in Christ. If not, the smallest spark can burst into a forest fire. What are the consequences for Isaac's family? You go down the passage, Jacob in verse 18-25, just point blank lied to his father. Who is this? It's your older son. How'd you get the food so quickly? I got it from this, I hunted for it. How did this happen? And he just kept lying and lying. He, had, he didn't care. He was estranged. Isaac was willing to steal the blessing meant for Jacob. Esau wanted to kill Jacob in verse 41 because Jacob stole from Esau. And Rebekah, interesting enough, after this story, never saw either of her kids ever again until she died. Every person in this family was estranged from one another. Why? Because they related with each other based on how useful the other person was to them. This is what we're warned from, church. God's family today don't relate to each other just based on how useful the other person is. And I want to know, I'm not just talking about different churches or different denominations. Look, you can still love each other even if you belong to different churches. You can call each other mine even if you belong in different, in different denominations. Not saying everybody has to be a part of one big local church or one big local denomination. Some of you perhaps have heard that this week one of the giants of the faith died. His name is R.C. Sproul. The first uh, book I read as a Christian was his book when I became a Christian in 2006. The Essentials of the Christian Faith. Pick it up. It's a great book. R.C. Sproul. He died. He passed away. But if you know, throughout his life, he had one guy just got his nerves. <laughs> one guy he just argued with all the time, John MacArthur. They argued about everything, about a lot of things. But this is John MacArthur's words uh, after R.C. Sproul's death. Let me read it. Today, my friend, co-defender of the true of the truth and, theolog and a theological, theological giant is standing in the presence of the Lord whom he loved and served faithfully. R.C. Sproul has stood with me for decades in every major theological controversy. This is his next word. And I will dearly miss him. There is no one like him. End quote. Why was he able to say that about somebody he had friction with his whole life? Because as much as they disagreed, as much as they felt estranged, even in the midst of their debates, they still called each other mine. They're brothers in Christ. They both believe that they're sinners and they're saved by grace alone, not because anyone's any better, but because Christ died for them. And friends, friction is going to happen at church, and it should. Sometimes it's even a good sign. Okay, against... Against popular claim. Thanks, everybody. It's okay. No friction here. <laughs> against, against popular claim, a lot of people would say friction at church happens. And because there's friction at church, that disapproves the gospel claim, right? P 
people in church fight all the time, so therefore the gospel can't be true. I want to promote, uh, I want to present the opposite. Sometimes healthy friction happens at church. When that does happen, it's actually a portrayal of the power of the gospel working. What do I mean? How can I say that? If your church preaches the gospel of grace every week, week in, week out, which is this, that no matter what our background is, we're all sinners, we've all failed, no matter how much money we have or had, no matter our family background, we've all failed, but yet God has given his life for us and died on the cross, that whomever should receive him will have eternal life with him. If that's what you preach week in and week out, guess what's going to happen? By God's grace, the likeliness is you're going to have a healthy church and people are going to come from different what? From different backgrounds, from different financial standings, from different races, from different families, from different cultures, because that's the message you're preaching. It is a gospel that puts everybody on the same boat for all sinners. It doesn't matter where you come from and gives everybody one hope, Jesus Christ. If you do that well, if you do that faithfully, people are going to come from different places. And when people from different cultures and different financial backgrounds and different families and different languages come together, guess what happens? Friction. Of course. Of course friction happens. When different people come from different backgrounds, you have different opinions about things in life. You see things a bit differently. You view money differently. You view business differently. There are some theological points that you might not always agree with. You're forced to deal with cross-cultural boundaries even. You have a different way of looking at life. You have a different way of communicating. Of course there's going to be friction. It shows the gospel is working. It gets very different people who would otherwise probably not live life on life with each other to be as one and live life on life with each other. We have a hard time living life on life with our own families who come from the exact same socioeconomic background, right? What makes us think this is going to be easy? Of course it's not. It's going to be hard. There's going to be friction. That's what the gospel does. It brings people together who would naturally not come together because you're all put in the same boat and given one hope. What I'm trying to say is this. Sure, we may be divided by different churches because of some big theological views. Sure, there may be interpersonal friction with each other because of different backgrounds. But protect yourselves from estrangement. Always call each other mine. Friends, this is urgent. It's urgent for two reasons. One, there's still consequences. One, yes, the gospel covers all sins. Yes, God at the end of the day will have redemption. Yes, we see uh, that in Isaac's family's case, there are still consequences for it on earth. But at the end of the day, um, Isaac and Jacob were still included in God's redemptive story, if you look at Matthew 1. Rebecca was still buried in the patriarchal burial site, if you look at the end of Genesis. In other words, at the end of it, God's redemption still stands. But yet there's still earthly consequences, wasn't there? The family still suffered brokenness and estrangement. Look, if, if somebody drinks and drives and hits a pole and they lose their arm and they come to Christ, they receive Christ as Lord and Savior, are their sins legally forgiven? Of course. Does their arm grow back? No. There's earthly consequences. Eternally, they're secure. They're, they're innocent in Christ. But there's still earthly consequences to sin. And if, if we keep 
estranging each other, one from one another, there's still earthly consequences to it. Brokenness, like Isaac's family. Division, dissension. Although at the end, God will still have his victory, yes. Two, it's urgent. Because the type of frictions that has haunted the church for centuries, it's not going to go away anytime soon. It's not. How do I know this? Because it's existed for centuries. Stick with me now. We're going to veer off the text and go to 1 Corinthians, okay? If you have later... If you have time later today, open up 1 Corinthians and just read. Read as much as you can. 1 Corinthians is a church that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. He wrote this 2,000 years ago. Okay? Um, and if you read the uh, 1 Corinthians, you'll see the same exact frictions that happen in church today happened back then. You look at chapter 1. There's friction because some prefer one church leader over another church leader. Some say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Cephas. Some say, I follow Christ. There's always that one guy, right? <laughs> I follow Christ. We know, buddy. That's what we're all trying to do here. Follow Christ. <laughs> but there's, there's just, you know, there's dissension because one prefers one church leader over the other. What's chapter 8 about? Is discussion on what foods are okay to eat and what foods aren't okay to eat. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 11, discussion, what is appropriate clothing for church? Chapter 12 and 14, discussion on, on views of spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues. Does that sound familiar? Also, the role of men and women in the church. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 15, discussion on the end times. Does that sound familiar? What are these, guys? These are not... These issues aren't unique to your church. They're not unique to CCC. They've, they've been around for centuries. Sure, it may cause some friction. Sure, you must hold fast to your biblical convictions. And perhaps by doing so, it might place you in one church rather than another. But call each other mine. Because the blood of Christ has made you one. That's why it's urgent. We can't let transactional relationship erode our sense of family. Because when these frictions come, and if our sense of family has been eroded because of our transactional way of relating to each other, if a, if a spark like this happens again, which has happened for centuries, forest fire. That's what's going to happen. Don't let the family part erode. So the question is, how can we do this? How can we truly stop using people in our relationships and actually start loving them as Christ loved us? Well, I read a book on marriage once. I forgot the name of the book or the author, sorry. It's a Christian book, it's a Christian author on marriage, and I remember him describing marital fights as this, as a forest struck by lightning, interestingly enough. He said, there are many things that cause forest fires, but one of the most common ones is that it's struck by lightning. I didn't know that. I, it sounds true. <laughs> it's struck by lightning, and that's why forest fire happens. But he said was even more... Okay, let's just put that thing down. It's all right. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Um, what's, what's even more interesting is that for each forest gets struck by lightning almost the same amount of times every year. Why one forest has more forest fires is not that it gets hit by striking more, but why, why some has more forest fires and why others aren't prone to forest fires is because of this. Some forests are in 
places where it rains more. So that the ground, the leaves, the branches, the trunks, the flowers, they're all drenched in water. So when thunder strikes, a spark might happen and the force might occur, I mean, the fire might occur, but it's contained because everything's wet. But other forests aren't rained on as much. So when thunder strikes, it hits. What is he saying? He's trying to make that analogy for marriage. All marriages get struck by lightning. Everybody fights. The difference isn't who fights more, who fights less. The difference is which marriage has been saturated and drenched in the gospel more. So that when lightning does strike, no forest fire. Friction, yes, no fire. And I want to extend that analogy to the church as well. Friends, all churches get struck with relational hurt, with arguments, with frictions. What makes the difference of survival is how much it's been saturated and drenched by the gospel, which is our last point. The God who favors the weak as family. All right. Now, in our story today, in, in, in Genesis uh, end of 26 until the mid of 27, we've seen how everybody in the story related with each other transactionally. They favored someone over the other because they thought somebody else could give them what they wanted. And notice, throughout all of this favoritism, there's one currency that they used to accomplish it. What was it? What did Isaac use to entice Esau, the older brother, to get delicious food and comfort from God's blessing? What did Rebekah use to entice Jacob in order to gain control over Isaac's decision? God's blessing. They wanted to allocate that. In other words, God's blessing is their currency. They wanted to allocate God's blessing in a place that would favor them the most. And at the end of the day, after all this mess, who got the blessing? In verses 28 to 19, Jacob got the blessing. In verse 39 to 40, Esau got the curse. Jacob was blessed. Esau was cursed. Now, stick with me. It's going to take some brain tangling. But let's think about this using two different lenses. The first lens is through the human lens. If through the human lens, put on your human lenses on. If, if somebody asks you the question, why did, why, was Jacob, why did Jacob end up with the blessing? Why did Jacob get the blessing? If you just use human lenses, what's the answer to that? Well, humanly speaking, Jacob got the blessing because Rebekah and Jacob was able to lie and sin and manipulate Isaac better. They're better manipulators. They're cunning. So the answer of why Jacob got the blessing is because of human lies and deception. That's, that's, the, that's the answer from human lenses. But now let's take the human lenses on and put on our God lenses. If somebody asks you the question, using your God lenses, why did Jacob receive the blessing? What was the reason? Well, remember, back in Genesis 25, what did God promise to this family a long time ago, before either Jacob or Esau was born? Remember what he said? The older shall serve the younger. So God is saying what? Jacob, the younger, will get the blessing. So if you use your God lenses, why is it that Jacob got the blessing? Because God wanted it to. So what's the answer then? Why did, why did Jacob end up with the blessing? Is it because of human favoritism and sinful manipulation? Or is it because of God's gracious will? Well, I guess you can say it's both, right? What's the author trying to say here? 
that God can use even the worst sins to accomplish his gracious will. God can use even the worst sins to accomplish his gracious will. And friends, when you hear that, the second you hear that, it should immediately point your hearts and your minds to another place in the Bible. Another place where men did evil, but yet God used that same exact evil to accomplish his gracious will. What am I talking about? What is the worst evil that man has ever committed in the Bible? The cross. Where man killed God. Yet, where in the Bible do we see God accomplishing the greatest act of grace? The cross. Where in his death, sinners are forgiven and can have, have everlasting life with him. Just look at the story. He's pointing us to the cross. I know it's messy. I know things are crazy right now. But nothing, nothing can distort me from my, from my plan, from my will for you. My gracious mercy. What is the cross? Listen to this, friends. The cross, com- compare it with the story. The cross is a place where Jesus Christ, the only one who deserved God's blessings, freely gave it to you. And he took upon himself the what? The curse. He didn't use it to, he didn't use it to manipulate you. He took it all and he gave you the blessing. When he had to choose between comfort and you, what did he choose? He chose you. When he had to choose between control and you, what did he choose? He chose you. In other words, this is what he's saying. I took the curse that was meant for you and I gave you the blessing that was meant for me. Totally opposite to what happened in this story. In other words, God does not love you because you're useful to him. He doesn't love you because you can add to his glory. You can't add to his glory. He's been glorious eternally. What do you think us going to church will kind of add to his? No. He doesn't love you because you've done anything to impress him. He died for you because he simply loves you. See, the popular understanding of having a relationship with God means is this. A lot of people, at least most people, I think would say this. If you serve God, if you're able to obey God, if you're able to give him glory, then he'll save you. Then he'll have a relationship with you, right? Your salvation, therefore, is based on how well you're able to obey and serve him. But don't you realize that kind of salvation would mean God is relating to you only because you're useful to him. It's a transaction. If there's a condition to his love, because you can serve him, because you can obey him, because you can make his name glorious, if there's a condition to his love and then he'll save you and then he'll give you the blessing, that's transactional. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the gospel is. What does the gospel say? The gospel says he didn't use his blessing as a currency to make you obey him. He didn't dangle it like a carrot, like trying to um, try to get a horse to come to come to you like, with a carrot. He willingly took the curse, and while we were yet sinners, Romans five eight says he died for us. Let's read First Corinthians one twenty six to twenty eight. For consider your calling, brothers. Remember First Corinthians, the book we went to earlier, calling. What's another issue we're talking about today in the church that causes a lot of friction? Election, calling, right? It's not new, all right? Okay, First 
chapter 1, verse 26, 28. For consider your calling, brothers, Paul says. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chooses the Jacobs of the world, the younger brothers, the unlikely ones. That's what he's been doing forever. He didn't die for you because you're useful to him. He died for you because he wants you, not just what you can do for him. If you think your obedience can add an ounce of glory to God, you're mistaken. He's not lacking anything. That's why saying, that's why the sentence doesn't work. Saying, I'm going to receive Jesus later in life when I'm more obedient. I'm going to receive Jesus later in life when I'm less sinful. That statement doesn't fly. It doesn't work. Because he doesn't invite the strong. He doesn't invite the noble. He doesn't invite the powerful, but the meek. The poor in spirit. The ones who knows there's no later, I'll never get there later. And look, if you, if you wait to receive Jesus only until you have more to offer him, then the basis of your relationship with him will still be transactional. You, you'll be given love because you have something to offer. And if you say... Listen, if you say God loves you because of what you can offer, you know what that does? That'll justify you treating others in the same way. If God is allowed to relate to you transactionally, then it's not wrong for you to relate with others transactionally. Or else you'd be saying God is wrong, right? But, but the gospel says this, no, you can't treat each other transactionally because God doesn't. Love others in the same way that I've loved you. Not because somebody else is useful for you. Not because they can add on to your Instagram followers. Not because of comfort or control. Love them even at your own expense. A new commandment I've given you, love one another. This is what the gospel says. You're not loved for what you can do. You're loved because you're loved. Now go do the same. And guess what kind of chemical reaction happens when two people who both have this eternal foundation of grace interact with each other. Guess what happens? Yes, maybe these two people are in the same church and they have friction. Maybe these two people come from two different churches and they have friction. But how will these people who have been drenched in this gospel rain interact with each other? They'll call each other mine. You're mine. And, and yes, cultural backgrounds and differences, certain theological points might cause friction, but they will still call each other mine. They will treat each other as if the message of Christmas is true. That the king of kings, the most powerful being in the universe, humbled himself. He was born as a weak baby and gave up his life for them so that they may be his forever. They will treat each other as if the message of Christmas is true. Is it true for you? Is that the way God relates to you? Is that the way you relate to God? You'll see that by the way you treat other people. If this is the first time you're hearing the gospel, you're still exploring it, you want to know more about it, I hope you see the power of this gospel. That it brings people together who otherwise probably would not have lived life on life with each other. And it causes frictions, sure. But I also hope that it makes you ponder 
what is this gospel? What is this power that unites cross-culturally? Or even for Jakarta, more importantly, that unites cross-financially? What is this gospel that does that? What is this power that goes beyond earthly riches? Might it be true? And if you are one of those who have been brought together as one in this gospel, in other words, if you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've been included in this church family, remember, this is urgent, urgent. Continually saturate yourself and remind your souls of why you're here in the first place. It's not because you were any better. It's not because you have anything more to offer anybody else. But because God and his love for you, not what you can do. He wants your heart, not just your arms, has loved you and died for you. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Let's pray. Father, Lord, what a convicting truth that the God of the universe would not withhold his blessings for us, but even at the expense of comfort on the cross, and even if for a time on the cross you let go of your control and allowed yourself to be crucified by weak men, you chose us. You chose us who don't deserve it. You chose us who would rather worship comfort and control, who would rather worship other things instead of your word and do the same exact sin that Isaac and Rebecca did. And we've loved other things more than we've loved you. And we've worshiped, created things like house and a car and work and relationships and other things to fulfill our ultimate longings. We've made good things ultimate and we've worshiped false gods. But yet in your mercy, you came down, you became weak for us so that now even in the midst of our sins, even while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Father, let us wait no longer to embrace and receive this amazing love that now we can come and approach your throne boldly, not as your enemy, but as your forgiven adopted child in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.